0: It is January 2022, and that means it is time for the first Global in the Granite State podcast of the year. Thank you to everyone who listened last year and helped us crack 10,000 listens from 70 different countries. It is amazing to see the interest in these global discussions, and we are excited to bring you more engaging, insightful, and amazing discussions of top global issues. For those who are listening for the first time, thank you for joining. I am Tim Horgan, Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and your host of this podcast. Today, we are diving into the topic of the treatment of the Uyghurs in China and what can be done about it. It is clearly a big issue these days, with many countries implementing a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics over this issue of human rights abuses. We are honored to bring you this timely discussion and hope you will learn a little bit more about what is going on in the country. We also hope you find some good suggestions at the end on ways that you can make your voice heard on this issue. Let's get started.
1: My interest in China actually started probably right around the Tiananmen Square Massacre.
0: That is Vikram Manchuramani, a lecturer at Harvard University, author of Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, as well as a leader in the global finance world. In
1: 1989, I was in high school and I found this to be very disturbing. The visual, which has made its way around the world gazillions of times of a Seoul student standing in front of a tank. And it really inspired me to say, well, what, what, what causes that? What what happens? Why is it that happens in the world? And yet I can sort of do what I want here in the United States. And so in college, I found myself interning with a former U.S. ambassador, Jim Lilly, former U.S. ambassador to China. In fact, he was the U.S. ambassador to China during Tiananmen Square. And so I had the opportunity to having been sort of intrigued by what occurred there and this violation of freedom and sort of this crackdown on their own people and a government literally killing their own individuals. I so, was so disturbed by this that I ended up studying with him in a handful of summers. Uh, he was at a think tank in DC called the American Enterprise Institute. And so I, I spent a couple of summers with him working on this project on China. And the topics we looked at were Chinese military modernization. What were their ambitions? Why did they want? An aircraft carrier, if they were sort of protecting their coast. Well, that's interesting. They want to project power. We looked at where they were developing military relationships. This was well in, this was the early 90s. This was well in advance of the Belt and Road Initiative. And well, by the way, it all lined up. When I went to college, this, in college I was uh, I studied East Asian studies and I studied Chinese specifically. When everyone back then, early '90s, Japan was going to take over the world. China was a nobody; nobody cared about China. But I studied China, and I found it fascinating for the population and then this interest. And then uh, Ambassador Lilly got me fired up about something in 1993 that became the topic of my senior essay. Was you know what is the Chinese military trying to do in an area known as the South China Sea? Well, turns out here we are sadly, almost 30 years later, still talking about that topic. And so this has been an area and a passion of mine for a long time. I mean, those of us that have been bitten by the foreign affairs bug or sort of global affairs bug find it's a really hard itch to scratch. You gotta keep scratching and it just doesn't go away.
0: Due to his interest in China and his extensive background in global business, he's found cause with the weaker population in Western China, where many countries have labeled China's actions as an act of genocide against this predominantly Muslim group. If you are listening to this podcast, it is probably safe to assume you have a general understanding of the Uyghurs, but here is some additional background. They are Turkic-speaking people whose history is tied to Central Asia, with over 10 million residing in China today. They are one of the oldest Turkic-speaking people in Central Asia, and the majority consider themselves Sunni Muslim. China has been accused of detaining over 1 million Uyghurs in what China calls re-education camps and using them as forced labor.
1: Part of what's really important to understand is that this is really part of Central Asia we're talking about, this Xinjiang region. And in fact, even calling it Xinjiang is giving into the Chinese Communist Party's description of it. Those who are from the area refer to it as East Turkestan. This was an area that was independent right up until 1949, when the Chinese Communist Party effectively occupied the area and claimed it under their control. It's been an area that has been associated with what, you know, again, the Chinese Communist Party description as separatist movements. The residents of East Turkestan that happened to be disproportionately Muslim, Uyghur, but also some Kazakhs and other ethnic minorities have thought of it as trying to retain their independence, trying to retain control of their land. Uh, They feel like they're occupied. And so there's different perspectives to begin with. As a result, this is an area of the country of China, if we call it that, that has been a constant source of friction and concern for the central government in Beijing.
0: This area of the world has seen many rulers and conflicts for control of an area that acts as a connector for China to the markets of East Asia and Europe. As early as the third century CE, conflicts have sprung up and more recent history is no different.
1: In fact, the first student uprising against a communist party regime, the first sort of anti-authoritarian, pro-democracy movement was not Tiananmen Square, which gets a lot of the headlines, but in 1985 in Xinjiang, there were some protests that started. And that was really some of the pushback against the occupation, the authoritarian, the control, etc. So that's part of the context here.
0: With this as the backdrop, the question now becomes, what is driving the Chinese Communist Party to hold these people in camps and create this international backlash for themselves?
1: China's a country that's disproportionately homogenous from an ethnic perspective, 90 plus percent Han Chinese ethnically. And so, Muslims are a very small minority. There are beliefs among those that are sort of in leadership positions that the Han Chinese are a superior race. And I say that using quotes because it's their wording. I'm not sure it's broadly uh, understood as such, but there is this idea that the Han are better, at least in some circles. And so, minorities are diluting the population, minorities are potentially separatist in instinct. And then after September 11th, where the United States started this war on terror, minorities were also, such as the Muslim minorities in Chinese-occupied East Turkestan, as I will refer to it, although we can just call it Xinjiang, admitting that we're not giving into the Chinese description, that they were also extremists and possibly even worth labeling as terrorists. This enabled a whole bunch of political campaigns, uh, I think is probably the best description, that the Chinese Communist Party took on in Xinjiang province, or again, Chinese-occupied East Turkestan. And that included this attempt to de-radicalize, or this war on terror. Now, to sort of be balanced a little bit, it's important to remember that there were some Uyghur minorities Terrorists that that did have some violent acts against the Chinese government, and so you know this is not a storyline without some reason. However, one person does not an ethnicity make, <laughs> and so you know having unfortunately a couple of bad actors gave the Chinese regime the political cover, at least domestically, to say, hey, this is a war on terror. We need to get rid of extremism at home, this separatism, these extreme. Terrorists uh, that exist in Western China, are, we need to take care of them. And so that started uh, what became the first of effectively known as two campaigns. One was this sort of attempt to quell extreme instincts to sort of deal with the terrorist risks, et cetera, and the separatist risks. And then there was this effective homogenization campaign, which is what we're all hearing about, that effectively took place starting in 2017.
0: Many international organizations and various governments have documented countless human rights abuses throughout the region, including forced labor, detention camps, sterilization, and an overall effort to stamp out their ethnic identity. It would seem that in light of this information, the world would at least be working from the same set of facts. However, that is not the world we live in today, and China and its allies have a counter-narrative that significantly downplays what is occurring.
1: One of the first comeback lines from the Chinese were they don't exist. So that was the initial reaction. And then when overwhelming evidence, whether it was drone footage, release documents, etc., came out about these camps, you know, there's this building that didn't exist on Google Maps satellite imagery three years ago and does today, and it has barbed wire, it has a watchtower, and there's these people being blindfolded, taken into large areas and you know then loaded onto trains and being sent away. What is this? What's going on? And so then the Chinese government's reaction was, oh, these are re-education camps because we're trying to help you know, every society has some wayward individuals, and you know, like I'm sure we could find in the United States and other countries, you have prisons and prisoners get transported, and and so that's all you're witnessing here. And so there is an element that is, well, of course this exists, but it's not a big part of what happens here. You know, have you been to Xinjiang? Is often one of the first reactions the Chinese government official will ask to anyone criticizing it. Have you been there? Have you seen it? It's a beautiful god kind of place. And yes, of course we have some people. You know, the the accusations of genocide and the declarations of genocide that have been made by numerous organizations that are very thoughtful and, you know, review a lot of evidence. The one organization I would point listeners to is if, if you do get a chance, in fact, if there's one resource I would encourage listeners to go dig deeper into is to visit the Uyghur Tribunal. The UK had an independent watchdog review lots of testimony and evidence that had been made public. And it came to some startling conclusions, including labeling it a genocide. You know, they, they had a whole bunch of caveats around it, but they did effectively say there were crimes against humanity. There was torture taking place, et cetera. So I think that's part of the understanding of this debate. Well, A, is it widespread? B, there really aren't killing lots of people, right? I mean, so the, the, the regimes that are often analogous, say, oh, in fact, I've even said, look, that it's worth thinking about whether or not this is an analogy that should be made with what happened in you know the late 30s and 40s in Germany. The analogy breaks down because the Chinese are not using concentration camps in a way where they're literally exterminating or killing individuals. And so um, now with that said, <laughs> I find it fascinating. And in fact, again, another piece, sorry, I can't help myself as an academic. I, I, I literally can't help myself. I have to give recommended readings out to individuals, et cetera, so apologies. But even the Holocaust Museum here in the United States published a report that's worth reviewing. And in fact, so I, you know, I, I want to make sure that we understand there is debate here, but I'm not sure the debate is completely, completely warranted. There are, in fact, different perspectives, but <laughs> the evidence does strike me, whether it's from the release Xinjiang papers, whether it's, there's all sorts of other data leaks. There was a German-born academic Adrian Zenz, who's documented a whole bunch of these concentration camps. There's public information about mosque destruction using open source data. There's overwhelming evidence, in my opinion, that there is a lot going on. Now, is it widespread? Is it intentional? Is it linked to the Chinese government? Is it locally controlled or is it state orchestrated? These are debates. Now, I will tell you a recent report that just came out here, I think a few, not even just a few months ago, that came out from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Again, for any listener that wants more information, it's called The Architecture of Repression, Unpacking Xinjiang's Governance. It very directly ties this straight through to the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. And so, you know, there is definitely evidence there as well. So, I think the debates to summarize really quickly, the debate is a is it widespread, or is this just of course every country has some 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 wayward individuals that need to be sort of brought back into society that you know they'll highlight the US recidivism rate with you know criminals that go back. And so, you know, hey, we don't want that to happen here in China. And so we're working on it. But again, I would also encourage individuals to look at that United States Holocaust Memorial Museum report. It's called to make us slowly disappear.
0: If we go with the evidence that indicates this is a genocide, and that it is being run by the Chinese Communist Party, that leads us to the next part of this global discussion, which is to say, what can and should we do about it? There's a wide range of options out there, but it would seem not all of them are viable nor necessarily wise courses of action. We will not see international military action anytime soon to resolve this issue unless something drastic happens. With China sitting on the UN Security Council and the Human Rights Commission, it would be hard to see the United Nations being of much use here either. Many people would even question should the US and the international community do anything about this, as it is an internal domestic issue for China to handle, and we wouldn't want China coming into our country and trying to dictate our community policing practices. So where does that leave us?
1: The description of internal versus external, I think, is valid. Domestic issues should be perhaps dealt with domestically, except when they sort of rise to this level of crimes against humanity and sort of human rights violations, which I do personally believe that there are some universal rights that humans have. And I think violations of those become concerns for all of us on this planet. In fact, not just us, uh, the United States as a government, but everyone. And in fact, I love it because the Uyghur tribunal, you know, in their concluding statements, they explicitly didn't make any hardcore recommendations. But what they did say was that they hoped the public would recognize what is happening here, the outrage it should generate. And it said, in fact, I'm going to read from it really briefly here. The Uyghur tribunal said, we hope that the public and then quote, they're motivated to uh, drive their own countries to act without delay when a million and more are interned in order for their minds, born free, to be trained to follow a single line of thinking, their bodies to be at the disposal of those who would rape or torture, their rights to bring new life into the world curtailed, not just in the genocidal way identified, but by effective separation of the sexes through forced labor by their children created in human relationships lost not through death, but through non-human alienation achieved by being entered into a model-making machine. They're asking the world to take notice to what's happening here. And in this court of public opinion to pass judgment, to actually generate the pressure as citizens, those of us here in New Hampshire and elsewhere, to tell our elected officials, hey, we want the United States to take a stand on this. This is something that matters, not because we identify as Americans fighting the Chinese, but because we identify as humans on this planet, and that every single human deserves a base level of dignity and respect for their way of life. You know, that sort of multicultural respect one might argue, is a value in and of itself. And that is, in fact, subject to debate. That is, in fact, true, right? The Chinese perhaps may have less respect for multicultural approaches, especially given their disproportionately homogenous society.
0: And what about multilateral organizations?
1: I believe that a lot of the multilateral institutions in the world have been hijacked by the Chinese. And I think they've been hijacked in numerous ways. One way, very directly, is through this Belt and Road Initiative, deploying capital into emerging countries that are capital starved to help them develop using debt. And when they can't pay back that debt, to sort of use it as a means of influence. And we've seen that happen in various places around the world, you know, in Pakistan, in uh, Myanmar, in uh, Malaysia throughout Africa, et cetera. And so surprise, surprise, these countries tend to vote with the Chinese pretty disproportionately. And so if you believe, as I do, that multilateral institutions have been hijacked by the Chinese and that they are no longer independent entities where conscience rules, but rather entities where economic relationships, you know, the Chinese specifically exhibit power or exert power, Then we need to ask why are, you know, the answer to the question of why are multilateral institutions not addressing this challenge becomes obvious. Of course, they are not going to (laughs) because they can't. And, you know, again, at the risk of opening another can of worms, surprise, surprise, the World Health Organization did not pursue the investigation into the origins of the current coronavirus pandemic. Well, they were disproportionately funded by the Chinese. I mean, okay. As you know, I recently wrote a little op-ed here for the Concord Monitor, and, you know, my, my concluding line was that kowtowing to the Chinese
0: cash has to stop. This is an interesting point, as the U.S. and its allies set up the international order to help promote their own ideals and systems. But now China is trying to reshape them in order to better suit their own needs. The battle over multilateral institutions is not going away anytime soon and could fill a whole other episode. But suffice it to say that leaving these institutions and going it alone is not the path forward for the U.S., as it only opens more space for China to reshape them in their own image. The other challenge that China and others pose when the U.S. speaks out about this genocide is that the U.S. does not have a stellar human rights record ourselves. The way in which minorities are treated in our own country is used by others to say, who are you to judge us? So, can the U.S. be a global defender of human rights if we are not perfect ourselves? It's a fabulous question.
1: And I think the fact that you're even able to raise it indicates the tolerance and open-mindedness to understand that we Americans are not perfect, but we are a process and we work on making ourselves better constantly through open debate, dialogue, and discussion. And yes, do we have work to do here? Absolutely, we do. Do we have work on some of the human rights violations that may be taking place within our own borders? Absolutely, we should focus on that. But that in no way diminishes the role that we can play with our purchasing and with our engagement with various companies of what's happening in Xinjiang or Chinese-occupied East Turkestan, right? I think this idea that it's either or is a false dichotomy. We can do both. We can and should do both. Uh, In fact, it's consistent to say, that all humans deserve various rights that are inalienable. And that applies to minorities here in the United States, the way it would to minorities anywhere in the world. And there are some thresholds that when a government exceeds uh, its reach, if you will, that hopefully the population of the world would step up and say, this is not okay. This is not okay. These are fellow humans on this planet and as such, we, in, in respecting their rights, are respecting our rights, and so we should all bind together. So I think you're completely valid to raise the concern that the United States has issues of its own, and yet we are working on them. We're not perfect. We have lots of work to do. It's an ongoing project, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to problems elsewhere in the world.
0: As with many of the topics we delve into here, many people may find themselves thinking that this is too big of an issue for me to do anything about. I don't work in government. I don't have a large international business. I am just one person. However, there are a number of ways you can make your voice heard. So I've got two young kids and
1: oftentimes they say, well, what can I do about something? I can't do anything about that. That's too big. And. You know, I think there was a, and and I'm embarrassed, I don't remember the actual source of the quote, but there was a quote that says, you know, one person should never hesitate to try to change the world because in fact, every movement to change the world began with one person. And so there is something that all of us can do. And that's very simply to pay attention to the issue, to talk about the issue, to spread word of the issue. That's easy. Even in dinner party conversations with friends over email, etc., you see a news story, share it with folks. So that's one thing is just spreading the word. The second thing for those that are perhaps a little more motivated and have some time and energy on their hands, and it doesn't take a lot of time or a lot of energy, but is to ask questions. So, you know, Apple, for instance, in one of the reports from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, parts of the Apple supply chain go through Xinjiang and might have some forced labor in there. Well, that's probably not okay. And my guess is if consumers understood that, they may be a little more concerned. And I think the publication of that report actually caused Apple to reevaluate some of its supply chain. You know, we're talking about sports because of the Olympics, et cetera. Well, you know, cotton is a big input into athletic attire and even sneakers, et cetera. And it turns out, you know, something like 20 something percent of the world's cotton is sourced out of China. And 80% plus of the cotton that comes out of China comes out of Xinjiang, or as I refer to it, Chinese-occupied East Turkestan. And in that regard, is it worth asking questions of companies like Nike? Excuse me, do you have a supply chain that is free of what some people are calling conflict cotton, right? We have things in Dodd-Frank bill says, hey, we have to pay attention to conflict materials. Uh, We don't want to have... Children miners in the Democratic Republic of Congo finding cobalt for us to put in our phones and other things. Well, do you really want to have forced labor in Western China producing your cotton that enables you to, you know, wear cheap t-shirts? <laughs> no, my guess is some of us would probably care about that. Or as we hear more and more about this green effort that we're all going to move to solar, we're all moving to wind and alternative energies. Well, where are those solar cells coming from? Well, it turns out. There is a disproportionately large source of solar cells that come from China. And specifically, they come from Western China and the Xinjiang province. And so what if you knew that the solar cells you were putting onto your house so that you could, quote unquote, be green, were actually being supported or created and made less expensive for you through forced labor? Uh, and that you were actually supporting the Chinese Communist Party's regime by buying those solar cells. Again, I don't think these links are very direct and they're harder to investigate, but there may be questions worth asking. And we can go on and on and on. There's, you know, whether we want to talk about other materials that they're produced there, but, you know, just not to bore your listeners here, but I'm going to quickly highlight even a handful of companies that were profiled in this Australian strategic policy report that came out. There was a report that came out, it was called Uyghurs for Sale. And it talked about, talked about various companies. And it mentions like 82 well-known brands that have forced Uyghur labor in their supply chain. And I'll just mention a couple that they mention. They say there's at least 82 well-known global brands in the technology, clothing, and automotive sectors, including Apple, BMW, Gap, Huawei, Nike, Samsung, Sony, and Volkswagen. And if you start thinking about Samsung and some of the other large companies, and the fact that they may be getting a competitive advantage from the lower cost of labor and their components, and then you also connect those dots to say, wait, hold on, the South Koreans decided not to join the diplomatic boycott, and in fact, are sending their government to Beijing for the Olympics. You start getting a different world view in terms of if you see the world bifurcating into two global economies, that you might say Korea may be falling in one that we're not as aligned with. Well, what does that mean for global supply chains? Et cetera? So anyway, all of this is a long-winded way to say all of us can do a small part that can snowball in aggregate to having a big impact.
0: This rings true for many of the litany of global challenges that we all face today. From climate change, to conflict resources, to equality and justice, if enough people start making changes to their daily lives, then there is an opportunity to make big change. If we all say that I'm not making a change until governments do, or celebrities do, or whomever, then the pace of change will be slow. Do your part by engaging with the world, understanding the world, and challenging your own perspectives. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast. We really appreciate your interest in these discussions and are glad that you find them valuable. To help this program to continue to grow in quality and depth, please consider donating to the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire today. You can find the link to donate in our episode description or simply visit our website at www.wacnh.org. As always, Tim Horgan is the host, editor, audio technician, producer, and anything else you can think of for this podcast. Our series audio is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our episode music is Genocide by Ethers. Thank you again, and we will be back next month with more engaging discussions.